Hello, everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Pavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. My guest will be Chef AJ. Uh, she is an amazing vegan chef, plant-based chef, and she has a television series that she does and the podcast, and I'll tell you more about her in just a little bit when she comes on. But first, I wanted to talk to you about some things going on in the news, some ways you can take action, and of course, share my weekly recipe with all of you. So first off, I wanted to just share with all of you that IE Green is expanding our property a bit. We are acquiring another couple acres, and we actually would like to make that that acreage available to a BIPOC farmer who would be interested in starting a farm. Uh, it is too much land for me to farm myself. And having done so much um, looking at and talking about the issues around farming in America, especially when you're black or indigenous and you have not had the same opportunities as white folks, we thought it would be really awesome to give that land to a person of color who would like to farm. So if you know any such person who would like that opportunity, please reach out to me and we can talk about it. I had one person call me who was interested in the chicken farm. That is not what I'm interested in. <laughs> I'm not looking for um, a slaughterhouse next door at all. I'm looking for an organic vegetable farmer. So if you know anybody that's interested in farming, um, please reach out to me either you know, through my website, my email address, or my cell phone. Um, also, I wanted to share with you that um, really great news that the EPA finally has banned corpiferous on food crops, which is a, um, a really great thing. We've been fighting for that for many, many years. Corpiferous is a pesticide that has been sprayed on food crops and is um, connected to a whole bunch of health issues. And now we will not have to deal with it. It's also really bad for wildlife, for birds, fish, bees. Um, so this is a really great win for all of us who care about our environment and the food we're putting into our body. So that's really great. And then I also um, wrote about in my newsletter this week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, their report on how to mitigate climate change and how agriculture is such a huge part of it and that we really need to look more towards agroecology. And for those interested in what agroecology is, it's a holistic approach to farming. It's a practice that includes um, indigenous techniques such as intercropping, planting cover crops, integrating livestock and trees into the landscape and deploying organic farming methods so that we can enhance biodiversity, soil health, and eliminate our dependence on external inputs like pesticides and synthetic fertilizers. It's a nature-based solution and it can contribute to both climate mitigation and adaption with our changing climate. So um, this is you know, really informative and I hope the people in charge, our legislators, really take this to heart. We really need to start making some of these um, laws that will help get us where we need to be for the climate crisis that we're all facing. And food, as you know, is one of those issues that we all can 
um, take on personally by our food choices. And that makes a difference as well. And we might get into that later in my conversation with Chef AJ. Um, ways that you can take action. This week coming out is um, the Environmental Working Group is coming out with their scorecards. And their scorecards are just incredible consumer guides that you can download. And they have ones for safe drinking water, for bug repellents, for pesticides on produce. And in the next week or so, they're coming out with their new um, guide on sunscreen, which I talk about every year this time of year as I watch moms globbering, globbing sunscreen all over their babies and not thinking anything of it. And you really have to think that your skin is one of your most vital organs and everything that you put on your skin is absorbed into your body. And so when you're putting on toxic um, bug repellent or sunscreen, it's getting right into your child's body. And so you really wanna know what you're putting on them and make wise choices. So the Environmental Working Group, and you can find them at ewg.org, has these great consumer guides. And last week they came out with their 2022 um, uh, Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen list, which is something I always talk about every year because it's such a great guide to have with you. And now I want to share with you my recipe for this week. It's a kale and napa cabbage salad with carrots, cranberries, and it's served with a Japanese dressing. And I'll just say right now, the Japanese dressing does have oil in it. And I know my guest today, Chef AJ, really promotes an oil-free diet. And there's things that you can substitute for the oil in this recipe. And we'll talk about that when I get to it. So this is a kale and napa cabbage salad with carrots and cranberries. The ingredients you need is six cups of kale leaves that you're gonna chop really fine, 12 cups of Napa cabbage leaves, also cut into thin slivers, two cups of grated carrots, that's about six large carrots, two cups of dried cranberries, three tablespoons of olive oil, and a quarter teaspoon salt. And then for the dressing, one stalk of celery, one onion, juice of half a lemon, juice of half an orange, one inch piece of ginger, um, some white pepper to taste, a half a cup of brown rice vinegar, a half a cup of tamari, one and a quarter cup of oil. You can use safflower oil, canola, or canola oil, and four tablespoons of either ketchup or tomato paste. And you're gonna rinse and dry the kale leaves and chop them up really fine. And then you're gonna to toss them with the three tablespoons of olive oil and a quarter teaspoon of salt. And you're gonna massage the kale leaves in your fingers until they become limp and really soft. And you're breaking down the fibers and you're making the, um, the kale leaves much more enjoyable to eat. I know when I go out to eat and I order a kale salad at a restaurant and they bring me a plate of what looks like raw kale, I'm about to die because I just don't like eating that. It's, you know, it's not pleasurable. I mean, you really have to like chew like you're a cow. And so you really wanna break down the fibers in the kale before you do that. You just do that by massaging the kale between your fingers until it gets soft. Then you add the cabbage and the carrots and the cranberries to that. Um, using a blender or a food processor, you can put all the ingredients of the Japanese dressing in there. And if you don't wanna use canola oil, you can use some tahini or you can use a half a cake of tofu 
or you can just add more lemon juice and orange juice and some water. Um, and that will work as well. But this makes a big batch of salad dressing and you're only gonna put a little bit on the salad. You're not gonna use this whole thing. So it will be a minimal amount of oil. But just mix that up, toss it, save a few um, cranberries to sprinkle on top for garnish. And that's it. It's really beautiful, very delicious. And um, let me know if you make it and how you like it. And that Japanese dressing can be used on any salad. Um, just save it because it's so good. But it should be refrigerated after you make it because of the orange juice and the lemon juice. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you Chef AJ. Chef AJ has been devoted to a plant-based exclusive diet for nearly 45 years. She was the host of the television series Healthy Living with Chef AJ, which aired on Foodie TV, a chef culinary instructor and professional speaker. She is the author of three best-selling books, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, A Revolutionary Approach to Conquering Cravings, Overcome Food Addiction and Lose Weight Without Going Hungry, Own Your Own Health, and newly released a 10th anniversary edition of Unprocessed. And all of these books have gotten great endorsement from so many of the luminaries in the plant-based movement. Chef AJ was the executive pastry chef at Sante Restaurant in Los Angeles, where she was famous for her sugar, oil, salt, and gluten-free desserts, which use fruit, the whole fruit and nothing but the whole fruit. She broadcasts Chef AJ Live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter daily. She is the creator of the Ultimate Weight Loss Program, which has helped hundreds of people achieve the health and body that they deserve and is proud to say that her IQ is higher than her cholesterol. In 2018, she was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame. Welcome, Chef AJ. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So um, I know you just come, came off of doing a TV show. Why don't, can you tell us about your Oh yeah, what was it actually, I did a TV show many years ago, but what it is, is I, I stream every day on three social media platforms at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And I've done almost a thousand episodes since the pandemic began. I never intended to be quote a YouTuber or have a YouTube show, but what happened is I'm not very savvy with technology. And I was trying out a new technology called Restream and it was very unfamiliar with how it worked. And I have a private group, a private membership group, and I was trying to go live to them the first day that, well, I don't know exactly what day the pandemic officially began, but at least in California, the first day that sheltering in place began was March 20th, 2022. And I was trying to go live to my group to create a sense of, you know, comfort and community and connection. And I pushed the button that made me live everywhere. And there was like a thousand people watching and they were like, oh, we really appreciate this. And after a couple of times, I thought like, they're gonna get really bored of just hearing me. So I started contacting my friends in the plant-based movement, mostly doctors and chefs. And I said, hey, there's there are these people and they, you know, they want some connection. And, and the next thing I know, people were writing me, can I be on your show? And I'm like, well, what show? And then, then now it's a show. So I really enjoy doing it because I am meeting more people in the plant-based world and in the world in general and reaching more people than I ever did the 10 days that I was hitting the road every week, you know, speaking at a conference. Right, right. I know at the beginning of the pandemic, I did some um, cooking demos on, um, on Zoom, I guess and had people signing up and it was great. It was just a way to connect with people while we were all just freaking out about the new reality that we were in while we were hibernating at home. And it was really a lot of fun, but I also am not tech savvy. So it was a real challenge. Um, 
I actually thought before we started in with, you know, a lot of questions, I wanted to ask you if you could share your own personal history a little bit. Like, how did you get on a um, plant-based pathway going back 45 years? Yeah, I was really young. I was 17. I, you know, I think I would have done it younger if I had parental support uh, because I'm going to be honest, I never enjoyed eating animals. I ate them because, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of eat what's served. You don't really have a job or any money. But I always felt that there was just something wrong with this whole system, like because I always looked at animals as friends. And, you know, I, I it just the only way I could eat an animal as a child is if it was cooked beyond recognition and it didn't have anything that reminded me of it. So, for example, even when I ate animals, I could never eat fish with the exception of maybe canned tuna because fish was always served as a fish. The bones were mm -hmm. in it, the head. And it was like, I'm not eating that. You know, that was alive. Whereas I could if tuna fish was on bread, it, you know, it, it didn't remind me as much of an animal right. with mayonnaise and the celery. Right. I, I could disassociate. I could pretend it wasn't an animal. And so if my mom were to give me a bowl of chili and it had beans and ground beef, in my mind, I wasn't eating an animal. But if I had a steak and it had a bone in it or if there was any like blood, oh, my God, like I could never. And when people would order rare or medium rare, I would just get so disgusted. Yeah. The only way I could eat a piece of meat is if it was like the end piece and it was burned beyond recognition. So I never really liked animals all that much. And, you know, I don't remember the language I had of like, can I be, you know, my, I remember having a conversation, well, can I just not eat animals? Oh no, you, you know how parents are, you'll die, you know, protein deficiency. And like, there hasn't been a single vegan that died. Or, I don't think there's been a single person that has eaten enough calories in the history of the world that died of protein deficiency. But I left for college at the age of 17. I skipped to the fourth grade. So I was always a year younger than everyone. So at the age of 17, I went to the University of Pennsylvania where I was supposed to be a veterinarian and instead became a vegetarian, actually a vegan. I didn't even have the word in 1977 because very soon when school had started, I was assigned to work for a veterinarian as part of my scholarship, work study, if you will. And on the first day of the job, he handed me a tank of live salamanders and he wanted me to decapitate all of them. And I'm like, why? And I'm a person that like, even like when I was taken, I was taken to go fishing once I couldn't, I couldn't thread the hook. I mean, I just thought killing anything was just not right. You know, like, even though we ate meat as, as we, I was raised Jewish, like there were certain things as Jewish people, we didn't do like wear fur coats, for example, you know, there was just things that there was some, at least some semblance of compassion in my religion, at least where animals were concerned. And so I said, well, why do you want me to do that? And he said, well, we're doing protein lens regeneration experiments in the amphibian. And, you know, they take up too much room. We only need the eyes. And I, I didn't know what to do because I didn't know Neil Barnard then or PCRM or that I had rights or animals had rights. So I did decapitate one salamander and I was so, I mean, without that salamander taking, you know, dedicating his life, I wouldn't be where I am today because after that I made a pact with God and I said, I'm never going to eat where or how many of your animals again. And I became an instant vegan on September 1st, 1977. And it was probably the best decision I ever made. Mm, lovely, lovely. I was young also when I became vegetarian, but I, I didn't go vegan. I, you know, I still was eating meat. I, I mean, milk and eggs, um, unfertilized eggs, of course, I differentiated, but um, I've only done the vegan switch officially couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was eating mostly plant-based up until then, but 
I definitely ate cheese and eggs and stuff. And um, it's been it's been a transition, but it's been a wonderful one. But I remember reading Diet for a Small Planet when I was 16. And that's when I stopped eating meat. Um, you know, it just kind of set me on path as well. So um, when did you write the first um, edition of Unprocessed? Yes. So I wrote it in 2010 and it was published in February of 2011. And that book was really my experience of being a culinary instructor because I had taught cooking, vegan cooking, uh, both hands-on and demonstration classes since about the year, actually it was, yeah, the year 2000. And so I had been a, a culinary instructor for 10 years. And one of the things I learned is it, you can't really argue, you can argue with people, but it really is a waste of time to try to argue with people that really strongly believe that we need meat. You know, it, it's not, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nutritionist and arguing with somebody is never really a good way to, you know, have a, a relationship with them. And so even though I know, and most people that are plant-based know that we don't need meat and it's really actually bad for us, the planet and the animals, people that aren't understanding that yet, it's not really worth having that argument. But one of the things I did know for sure is that the argument I could win was the one about processed food, because whether somebody eats meat or not, nobody is going to say that processed food is good for people. It's just not, it's not food, it's not health promoting. It's not good for human health. Right. And so I, I knew that at least what I've noticed from when I was teaching classes, because most people that were coming to me weren't vegan or vegetarian, although everything I did was vegan, of course, is that I could at least get them in the door by creating delicious vegan food that was unprocessed, that was made from whole plants, and that I could explain to them both from a physiological, biological, and even an evolutionary standpoint, why human beings are really not suited to eat processed foods. Because let's face it, what, you know, whether somebody eats sugar or not, there's nobody out there that's touting it as a health food. Right, right, absolutely. Um, I totally get the whole idea about the arguments. There's no point at all. Um, and I remember the first time, you know, I run up my local slow food chapter. And the first time we were having a slow food event and a vegan bakery called up and said, oh, can we offer some vegan um, desserts? And I, to me, I was just thinking vegan was healthy. They showed up with like artificial colored, you know, um, black velvet or red velvet, <laughs> red velvet cupcakes. And I was like, oh no, I was shocked that, you know, and sprinkles and all this stuff that is so not healthy. And um, I just told them they really couldn't serve that there. And we had a, a parting of the ways, but I remember distinctly, you know, at first, I think a lot of people think all vegan food is gonna be healthy when obviously it's not. Um, not at all. And, and, you know, there's also a lot of people believe that all vegans are going to be, you know, at their ideal weight. And I remember, gosh, it was four or five years ago, I spoke at the San Francisco Veg Fest and my talk was eat up, slim down and get healthy. And even before I gave the PowerPoint presentation, there was a person in the front row because a lot of people are not vegan at the Veg Fest. They're veg curious. And she goes, well, aren't you automatically like lean if you're a vegan? And I'm like, no, quite the contrary. There are many vegans that struggle with their weight just like the rest of the world. And that is and that just shows that it's it just not eating animal products for most people is not enough to achieve their ideal health and ideal body weight. Some maybe, but not for most. Right. 
Well, I remember when I first became a vegetarian, I, I said I was on the white diet. I had bagels, I had pasta, <laughs> you know, I had white stuff, um, not as much green stuff as you need to be eating, obviously, you know. Now I you know, promote, and so do you, you know, eating all the colors of a rainbow. You know, you want to eat all the colors. Um, and white is usually not one of them. Yeah, unless, unless it's cauliflower. We, well, there's a couple of or, things. Or cauliflower, yeah. yeah. Cauliflower, jicama, yeah. Jicama's white, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so why do you publish the 10th anniversary? What's uh, different about the new book? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because there are some differences. <laughs> Fundamentally, the book hasn't changed and my philosophy hasn't changed. But the thing was, is that the Unprocessed was a self-published book because that's I did have somebody that, that wanted to publish it. But at that time, I needed to do it that way because if you know anything about publishing, when you're self-publishing, you're, you know, you own the rights. And so it, monetarily, you, it's, it, it would be much more successful. And at the time, that was more important to me than necessarily getting my name out because I was the biggest promoter of my book anyway but this one was published by a publisher which gave me the ability you know to be in bookstores which was great I did I just did a book signing at Barnes and Noble but there were things that were that could have been better one process the original edition was the best book I wrote at the time with the knowledge that I had at the time but they often say as you know better you do better and one of the things I did <laughs> is I put the dessert chapter at the beginning of the book now I was 50 pounds heavier than two. So of course I thought it's a good idea to eat dessert first. Well, not really. It's a, you know, we want to treat treats as treats and desserts are great and they're important to a healthy balanced lifestyle, but I don't recommend eating them first or only is what I, is what I used to do. The other thing was, is I learned that not everyone can eat a really high fat diet and achieve and maintain their ideal body weight. Like I say, some can, mostly men can usually have a lot more plant fat in the diet, but people that have been struggling with weight often do better when they have less fat in the diet. That doesn't mean no fat, but that means less fat. So a lot of the recipes, while it was a great transition book, especially for families, were very high in fat from nuts, seeds, avocado. And I found ways to keep the original recipe flavor intact, but to give lower fat options. So the recipes are still as they appeared in the original version, but for people that desired to have less fat options, I was able to do that. The other thing is I was able to add beautiful color photographs by an enormously talented vegan cookbook author and photographer, Hannah Kaminsky, which is fantastic. I got a brand new forward by a rock star, in my opinion, in the plant-based world, Dr. John McDougall. And I also was able to find ways for people that wanted to completely avoid added sodium from things like miso, a way to do that as well. So I, that's, that's kind of how the changes occurred. Mm-hmm. And did you say you, you added miso in or you took miso? Well, well so out? I, I didn't, I had not yet met Dr. Ellen Goldhammer of the True North Health Center, who was really an advocate. And I think also coined the term SOS-free, sugar oil, salt-free. And so while I didn't use any salt, meaning table salt or sea salt or kelp, you know, Himalayan salt in my recipes, in some of them, I did use miso, which, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of health benefits to it, but somebody that's strictly SOS-free would not use that or tamari or coconut aminos in it. So I found ways for those recipes for people that let's say really couldn't have any sodium to do that as well. But it was always, there was never any sugar in the book. I always used fruit or dates for sweetening. So I was able to tweak. Oh, also I I forgot I added 30 recipes, brand new recipes, some really good ones too, by the way. Uh Uh-huh, lovely. Um, So 
you know, I just want to touch on again, we just talked about vegan as, you know, not all vegan food being healthy and that there's so many more processed vegan foods. What is your take on, you know, um, some of the vegan foods that are out there? Like I know um, Miyoko, you know, who makes the vegan cheeses, you know, does a really nice job using cashews. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I love her. She is, she's like my Shiro, Miyoko Shinner. And I think that anything you can do to get people to not eat animals, in my opinion, is great. But I'm not working with those people necessarily, you know, young people, people without diseases. Most of the people that are in my space are 40 and above. They've already got one, if not more lifestyle disease. They're on many medications. They have excess weight. And for the people that I am in contact with, these processed foods, which while very delicious and more favorable to the animals and planet, they're also very calorically dense. And they're mm -hmm. not something that I find that they can include on a regular basis and achieve all the health goals that they're telling me that they want to achieve. Right, right. And what do you mean by calorie dense or mm. caloric? Well, that's, that's like, that's my, that's, a, that's my, like that you, you just, now you're speaking my language because two books ago, my second book, which was my first best-selling book called the secrets to ultimate weight loss, where I outlined how I lost 50 pounds and kept it off for 10 years is based in the principle of caloric density. Now, this isn't something I invented. It's it, the research really was done by Dr. Barbara Rolls at Penn state university, where she studies human eating behavior in her laboratory. And many of the plant-based books like Dr. McDougall's program for maximum weight loss or Dean Ornish, Dr. Dean Ornish's book, Eat More, Weigh Less, are rooted in this principle of calorie density. And calorie density is completely different than counting calories. A lot of people think to lose weight, they have to count calories, carbs, or points, or weigh, measure, weigh and measure their food on a plate. Calorie density isn't about memorizing how many calories in a cup of rice or a half a cup of blueberries. It's basically just understanding what's called the average calorie density of a few food groups fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, things like that. Because what Dr. Rolls discovered is that human beings consistently eat the same amount of food per day by weight. Now that doesn't mean that I eat as much as say Robert Cheek, the vegan bodybuilder, but that all of us consistently eat about three to five pounds of food per day to feel full and satisfied. And if we understand this average calorie density of foods, which range in calorie density from a hundred calories per pound, which are non-starchy vegetables, to 4,000 calories per pound, which is processed and refined oils, we can easily you know, lower the overall caloric density of the meals by understanding these principles. So processed food, because it generally doesn't have a lot of fiber or a lot of water, because think about it, water has no calories, but it's full of bulk and volume. Processed food being pretty much free of water and fiber is going to have a much higher caloric density and it's going to contribute much less to satiety because of the lack of water and fiber. When you think of fruits and vegetables, that's where all the water and fiber is. And when you have water and fiber together in a whole plant rather than a processed plant, you create what's known as bulk. Bulk is what creates satiety. And so that's the thing. Processed foods are very calorically dense and our ancestors did not evolve on a caloric density as high as the diet that most Americans are eating right now. Mm -hmm. And I know in your um, in your weight loss book, you talk about um, helping to satisfy cravings. That you know, I think a lot of a lot of people who struggle with their weight really like will have an intense craving, and like nothing seems to satisfy it until they get that potato chip or whatever it might be that they're craving. How do you recommend they deal with that? 
Yeah, well, the way I recommend to deal with it is not really popular in most circles, but the way I recommend I, to deal with it is with something called abstinence. Because as long as you're including an addictive substance in your diet, and for most people, sugar, fat, and salt is addictive, at least when it's in its process form. Sugar in the form of fruit, salt in the form of green vegetables, fat in the form of nuts, seeds, and avocado. Not so much. I'm talking about these processed foods. They are addictive. And the food manufacturers knew that we were genetically hardwired to prefer the taste of sugar, fat, and salt for survival. And that's why they created a product that had at least two, if not all three of these. You see, whenever we eat food, we get a, we get a hit of dopamine. Dopamine is this neurotransmitter that's released anytime we have a pleasurable experience. But we were never meant to activate the dopamine pathway of sugar, fat, and salt at the same time. And that's what a potato chip is. Well, at least it's salt and fat. A French fry is sugar, fat, and salt. All desserts are pretty much sugar, fat, and salt. And there are no foods in nature that combine sugar, fat, and salt just doesn't happen. And so if you if you have cravings, you have to eliminate the foods that you're having cravings for. You can use substitution techniques. For example, when you're craving sugar, you can have fruit or you can have, you know, ice cream made out of frozen bananas. But that, eating addictive foods are always going to perpetuate cravings. If you're an alcoholic, you are going to always have cravings for alcohol until you stop drinking alcohol. And even then, every now and then you still might get it. So it's the same thing with food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Food, though, it's even harder to control when you have those cravings, I think, because everyone does it and it's everywhere. You can't you can't like not go into a bar. You know, I mean, when you're when you have a food addiction, um, you know, I know so many people have talked about that, how, you know, you can if you have a smoking addiction, you can just not buy cigarettes. You can you know not go around people that have cigarettes, but everyone eats. So it's you know going to always be there in front of you. So. Um, as you said, in your first book of Unprocessed, you do use more nuts, seeds, avocados. Um, is, isn't that type of fat assimilated differently in your body than, oh, definitely. than a processed fat like olive oil or an extraction mm. of fat? Absolutely. And Dr. Joel Furman talks about this all the time, that a lot of it is lost in the stool. The thing is, is the caloric density is also different. You see, if you take olives, for example, and eat them whole, they're five or 600 calories per pound. And when you eat the whole plant food, you have a food that has water, fiber, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants, and micronutrients. But when you process it into olive oil, you've now stripped it of all its fiber and nutrients, and you've taken it from about 600 calories per pound to 4,000 calories per pound. A tablespoon of olive oil is 130 calories. You could have more than two pounds of vegetables, two pounds of zucchini for that, right? And, and so nuts and seeds and avocado have a much less caloric density than olive oil. So nuts are about 3000 calories per pound, seeds about 2,600 calories per pound. And it's so much, avocado is only 750 calories per pound. And it is so much more satisfying to eat whole plant fats than it is to just be guzzling oil. When you use oil, by the way, you've got to use a lot more salt in order to be able to taste your food. But then you're getting the benefits of all the antioxidants, micronutrients, and the fiber that was in the whole plant. And so what I've said in both versions of in process is that we are meant, we're designed to eat food from a plant, not food that's been manufactured in a plant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for instance, for that salad dressing that I um, shared the recipe with before, in place of the in place of the canola oil, would you recommend somebody putting in an avocado or yes. 
half a cup nut of butter? cashews or how about nut butter? Because you know you can yes. massage. Tahini is great in that. Oh, yeah. tahini is fantastic. And you know, if, if somebody, let's say, was a patient of Dr. Esselstyn and was avoiding all plant fats, even massaging kale in hummus is going to break it down. Even lemon will do that because it's the act of the massaging that breaks it down. There's nothing right. really so special about the oil. But but avocado is a great way to massage kale. Ah, thank you for that tip. That's wonderful to know. Um, so in your book, I also noticed you don't include any type of serving sizes or calories in your book. You just eliminate that totally when you're- I do, I do. And some people have, you know, put bad reviews on Amazon because of it, but because they don't understand that if you really follow a whole food plant-based diet that's free of sugar, oil, and salt, you really can eat ad libitum. Most people can eat as much as they want, as often as they want, whenever they want until comfortably full when they're eating the right foods. And also here's the thing, people vary in appetite, in size. Like I never understood a lot of clients I get for weight loss come from these weighing and measuring programs where they have to weigh and measure even their non-starchy vegetables to seven ounces and they're getting 17 ounces of food per meal. I get like what they get for a day, I'll eat a whole meal. It's such a small amount of food. And yet I, if you're a four foot 10 woman or a six foot six man, they give everybody the same food plan. So how can I tell you? I could, I could tell you how much a recipe makes in terms of say how many cups it yields or you know one nine by 13 inch pan. But how can I tell you what a serving size is when I don't know how hungry you are I don't know what else you're eating for a meal. Do you know what I'm saying? To me, serving sizes yeah. is ludicrous. I mean, a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream says serving size is four. Really? Because when I ate that, it was always one serving. Yeah. Well, I found the same problem when I was um, the chef at the Waldorf School in Garden City. You know, a, a first grader was supposed to have the same size portion as a 12th grade guy. You know, how can a, a little kid you know, a, a six-year-old eat the same thing as a 16 or 17-year-old growing teenager. It just didn't make sense to me at all. So I would, you know, I'd ask people, is this enough? Would you like some more? And give them the amount that seemed like the right amount for them. And um, I think that really makes a difference. So you also talk about the seven C's in your weight loss book. Secret seven C's. What are right. those? Oh my God, the seven C's to success. All right, let's see if I can remember them in order. Well, the first one I always say is commitment because without commitment, I don't think you're going to be very far in any endeavor that you're trying to do, let alone affect permanent dietary and lifestyle change. Because I think when you have, when, you know, it's like getting married, you know, you know, when you, when you make that commitment, it's not until somebody better comes along. You've, you've made a commitment and, and I think you're going to put more effort into something once you've committed to doing something. Uh, you know, it's like, who was that? Yoda said, do or do or do not to, there is no try. So I think making a commitment and that, that involves kind of knowing your why, why you want to do this too, I think is really important. One of the words that I love that I say is in the seven seats to success is the word compliance. And the reason I use that word is because so many people, when I would work with them one-on-one -on -one, would say, oh, Chef AJ, I was really good today. I ate kale for breakfast or Chef AJ, I was really bad today. I ate a cookie. And so I think people need to know that if even if you eat something that is, quote, a bad food, that does not make you a bad person. And if you eat something, quote, that's a good food, it doesn't make you a good person. So I changed the vocabulary to 
compliance in medicine means following a prescribed course of action. So if your doctor says, take this medicine every morning and you do it every day, you're compliant to, cause most people don't have the same charge if they, well, I wasn't, I wasn't complying today for most people that doesn't have the charge of like, I was bad today. Some people don't like the word compliance, so they can use the word adherent. But the point is, is the more compliant meals you can string together in the healthy eating plan, the more successful you're going to be. And that's only if you do the next C, which is consistency, because consistency really is the ticket because nobody's health journey is a straight line, you know, up, you know, oh, like I got this information, I'm going to be perfect vegan tomorrow and, you know, all my problems are solved. No, that's not how success looks. But the, the consistency is really, really important because, you know, like I say, once you commit, it's real, it's much harder to quit the more consistent you are, the better your results. And, you know, I think about people in other areas of life, like athletes or musicians, why are they so much better than the average person at their, whatever their art is? Well, they practice all the time. I remember when I spoke on the Holistic Holiday cruise ship, there was an Olympic gold medal winner on the ship. And uh, he was, Nelson Navarro was his name. He was the gold medal winner in the, uh, it's one of the jumping things. I'm sorry. I can't remember from Portugal. I don't know sports very well. But I said, oh, you know, you know, oh, you can go on a cruise. You know, you don't have to be training. He goes, no, I'm off season now. So I'm only exercising two hours a day. Now, most people don't even exercise one hour a day. And so can you imagine like when he's in training, it's like when he's off and not do like when he's on vacation, he only has to exercise two hours a day consistency, you know, same thing with practicing a musical instrument. You know, I, I always talk about Ichak Perlman. He was a child prodigy, but he also practiced a lot, you know, basketball players, same thing. You know, I, I, I think I, I'm bad at sports names, but there's one who was known for coming early to practice and staying late. So consistency, you know, doing something over and over. And, and that's really important. One of my C's is cooking because I find that if you don't have to become a gourmet chef, but if you're not willing to at least find a way to get healthy food there, it's going to be much more difficult. Now, of course, there are people that probably can afford personal chefs or food delivery services. But for most of us mere mortals, if we can't even figure out like how to push a button on an instant pot or roast some you know, sweet potatoes, it's going to be much harder because guess what? If we don't cook the food ourselves, where are we going to get it? Fast food, drive through restaurant, that food is really not going to be health promoting if you're if you're doing that a lot, you know, restaurants use more sugar, fat, and salt than most of us would ever consider using at home. Let's see. Um, I'm doing this without looking at my book and it's been a while because I actually have a talk. So that was for number five, change, willingness to change. You know, there's a saying, nobody likes change except for a wet baby. Well, you've got to be willing to change. Maybe you might have to change where you eat, you know, especially if you're going to restaurants that are very unhealthy, you might have to be willing to change, you know, who you socialize with. You might be willing to change, have to change your environment or some of the junk foods that you're bringing into it, or even some of your friends. So the fifth C is the willingness to change. Okay. I, I'm saving this. I know what the seventh, why can I not forget? Why am I forgetting the sixth? Okay. You have stumped the, the chef. I'm going to look it up. And <laughs> Um, well, while you're looking, you know, I can say when you talk about consistency and cooking, cooking becomes so much easier the more you do it. And I always have to tell people that because, you know, cooking vegan food definitely takes more time and effort than sticking a steak under a broiler, without a doubt. But the more you practice 
cutting the vegetables and chopping vegetables and washing and spinning salad, the quicker it becomes, just like in anything with practice, it becomes easier. And so the cooking will get easier and quicker. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that little break. I looked it up. I cannot believe I forgot number six, because for some people, this is the most important and that is community like-minded community. Most people are not vegan. I think I hear something like 3% to 1%. And if they are, they're very often not healthy vegans. It's really important to have like-minded community because if, especially if you're the only one doing this in your circle of friends or family, doesn't mean you have to get rid of them, but to really find whether it's through meetup groups locally or online or conferences or podcasts, it's really important to be with like-minded people. Yeah, in my so opinion. helpful. Yeah. And then the last C is maybe the most important, which is compassion, having compassion for yourself when you maybe don't do as well as you hope, having compassion for the animals and the planet, which is why the main reason I think we we don't eat them. And, you know, having just being being more compassionate, I think, is really going to help you in your journey in general and in life. And that's the one I struggle with the most. <laughs> I don't struggle. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Um... I was wondering if I could ask you to share a few of your recipes with my listeners. I know I, I was looking at your recipe for lasagna. Oh, yeah. Um, that with greens and pine I'm happy to give you that recipe if there's a, a print way, but that one, like to, to talk that one through is a little bit more challenging because you actually pick the, my recipes are not complicated. Just so you know, I tested them all on my blind students where I taught, I volunteered cooking, teaching vegan cooking at the Braille Institute, but that is the one that's probably has the most steps of any, although I'm more than happy oh, really? to share it, but I, but I want to tell you, let me tell you some easier ones first. So I, I do a black bean soup that is just ridiculously nutritious and easy because you're basically throwing everything either in the instant pot or the soup pot where if you, you know, you're starting out with the water and I, I could look it up exactly how many cups. I can't remember if it's six or eight and you're literally throwing in pounds of vegetables, greens, uh, sweet potatoes, onions, garlic, uh, sun-dried tomatoes, and all the spices. And then you cook it for about, if it's on the stove, maybe 30 minutes. If it's the Instant Pot, probably only needs 10. Oh, black beans, of course, corn. And then when it's done, you just take the immersion blender and zhuzh it right in the pot. And Isn't it great? Yeah. It's so easy to do that. So that's, that's one of my, and you know, some of my favorite recipes, if you will, are not recipes. They're just putting foods together or combining them in a certain way. And I always batch cook potatoes and sweet potatoes. So like when I teach a late class or something and I don't have time to like be, you know, sauteing on the stove, one of our favorite meals, we call it the potato meal because it's a potato or a sweet potato, your choice that has already been cooked. So we can just reheat it and we stuff it with things like roasted corn, your, the bean of your choice, guacamole, either avocado guacamole, or I make one out of peas, which is lower in fat, salsa, your pico de gallo, it's cilantro, uh, uh, jalapeno peppers. And I've done these as potato bars, like when I've had company and people love it because people, it's like, it's like, like eating a bowl, except instead of like the base being greens, it's a potato and it's filling and it's satisfying and it's delicious and it's customizable. And so that's one. And then I'm going to give you another really easy recipe from the 10th anniversary edition of Unprocessed. It's basically two ingredients 
and three if you want to add some vanilla powder or vanilla extract. And these are my brownies. I call them brownies because they're raw brownies, B-R-A-W-N-I-E-S. You need a food processor and you take an equal amount. I, I usually say two cups of either walnuts or if you want to do the low fat version, oats. And you kind of grind it up with the S blade into a like a powder or flour like consistency. Actually, excuse me, it's three ingredients. I forgot the cocoa powder. And then you add a half a cup of cocoa powder or carob if you can't have chocolate. Let it was again for a second. And then about two cups of dates. And you let the food processor run until it kind of slows down and almost a ball forms. And then you can either roll it into balls, you can press it in a brownie pan, it can be a pie crust. It's so easy and it's so delicious. People cannot believe it. Yeah. I've had those. They are delicious. Uh-huh. And you're really famous for your desserts. You do a lot of desserts using no maple syrup, no honey, no, you know, yeah. no agave, just the fruit itself. Right. I, I, I have a saying that I use the fruit, the whole fruit and nothing but the whole fruit. So help me God. And mm -hmm. I, I, I love using, you know, whole foods. That's just kind of my thing. And even when I was a pastry chef for five years at a Los Angeles restaurant, I still just used the fruit. I didn't use any oil or salt. I barely uh, used flour. My next book is going to be over 150 recipes of all my desserts, either using dates, date paste, date syrup, or other fruits. Not all of them have dates. And yeah, I mean, you don't need sugar for sweetness. I, dates are the most incredible food on the planet. They are, they're like nature's candy. Yeah, they are really good. Mm -hmm. Really good. Um, okay, so now I'm ready for the lasagna. <laughs> okay, let me get the book. Okay, I gotta, I gotta get the book. What I found fascinating, because I, I do make, make vegan lasagna and I'll use either tofu in for the ricotta cheese or, um, or cashew cream. Um, but I was, had not seen one using cannellini beans before. Yes. So what happened is, is you could technically use tofu. It would work, uh, but I'm allergic to soy. But cannellini beans are so creamy that they do the same thing. And so what I'm doing is I am making a ricotta out of cannellini beans, two cans of them rinsed and drained. And then I'm adding a, a cup of pine nuts. That's, that's my preferred nut for this. You can use hemp seeds or cashews. Pine nuts I know are expensive. And sometimes when I teach this recipe, like at the spot at Mexico, where I, I get to teach called Rancho La Puerta, they can't get pine nuts. Oh, I've been there. I taught there too. Oh, when was the last time you were there? I was only there once actually. And it was uh, probably seven years ago, six yeah, or seven it, years it, ago. Something, I isn't love it? it. Did, yeah, you teach, did you teach cooking there? Yeah. Oh, uh -huh. nice. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a wonderful place. So that's a that's the rest. We always make this when I teach there, and the in the in the class loves it. And then they're also adding some miso, lemon, and nutritional yeast, fresh basil, and red chili flakes to it. And so this is like the ricotta, and that's filling number one. But there's another filling that we make where we're cooking it, and we're taking uh, onion and mushrooms and garlic, and then we're either marinating the mushrooms either in tamari or my substitute for tamari is a brand of vinegar called California balsamic, which, which tastes just like tamari. And then after we cook that down, that's another filling. And so then we're layering it with the sauce, the noodles. And I always, not always, but I often prefer to use the no boil noodles. It's just a little bit easier. You can get them in wheat or gluten-free. So we go sauce, noodle, filling number one, which is the 
tofu or the bean ricotta filling number two, which is the cooked mushroom and onion mixture. And then another layer of noodles, another layer of sauce repeat. And then we end with the noodle. But then I sprinkle what's called faux parmesan on top. And I have two versions, one using nuts and one using oats where I take uh, nutritional yeast with either oats or nuts. And then I add some seasoning. I, I use a salt-free seasoning called Benson's Table Tasting. And that it looks just like ricotta cheese sprinkled on top. And you can even put some olives on top if you like those. It makes it look really pretty. And it's very delicious. Yeah, it looked really, really delicious. Yeah, it's one of the and best pictures, yep, in the book. Uh -huh. It was really looked beautiful. Um, that's great. Yeah, Rancho La Puerta is a real treasure, isn't it? It's just such a nice place to be. It's beautiful. For all my listeners out there, if you haven't experienced it and you want to have a chance to go away, do some cooking, eat really well, be in some beautiful nature, um, just, just check it out. It's really a special, special place. Um, what else would you like to share with us? So how do people find you on YouTube? Oh, you know, my name is Chef AJ. And if they just go to the search bar on YouTube, I believe I'm the only Chef AJ. And if they are willing to subscribe and hit what's called the notification bell, anytime I go live, they'd be notified. But if they didn't want to do that, they could just show up on YouTube at 11 a.m. Pacific time when I go live every single day, seven days a week, no days off with an interesting guest, often a plant-based doctor, a plant-based chef will do a cooking demo, an author of a book. And they can also just go to my mailing list, chefaj.com. And I send out at least once a week, an announcement of who's going to be on the show and recipes, things like that. That's amazing. Well, Chef AJ, I want to thank you so much for the work you're doing, the people you're inspiring. Um, you know, it's, I just know I've, I'm on a similar path and it's just so empowering and wonderful and, you know, it's a passion. And so it's easy to share things that we love with others. So thank you for doing the work you're doing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And for everyone out there listening, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Bhavani at IE Green with my guest, Chef AJ. Have a great rest of the week and I'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah.